When I was digging into the chapter on religious liberty, one of the things that struck me is that um, neither in the Old nor in the New Testament is there a presumption of religious liberty, which is different than saying um, that, you know, I, I, I think you can make a biblical argument in favor of religious liberty, but, but there's not a presumption of religious liberty because the church can thrive in the context where there is no religious liberty. This, 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 this is what Let's be honest, talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford, and of course, it's my pleasure always to bring Dr. Tripper along and aboard. Uh, he is a somewhat a contributor for Tactical Faith. He's been on a couple of times. You've heard what I think about him. But quickly, we're going to bring him on because he's got a new work, a new book out called The Bible and the Ballot. Hey, tell me a little bit, before I, before I ask you some, some simple definitions, tell me why you felt like you had to write this book. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'll first of all say I didn't think about writing the book till my publisher, Erdman's, approached me about writing the book. And uh, and that seems to be the way a couple of my recent books have come about, that my publishers have pitched ideas to me. And it did take me a while to think about it, um, but, um, but a couple things motivated me to write it. First of all... Um, I'm not an expert in public policy, but then I realized that the Bible uh, doesn't give us specific public policies, and I am an expert in the Bible. (laughs) Uh, You may disagree with my interpretations, but I have been studying the Bible basically eight hours plus a day for 40 years and reading it devotionally and, and professionally. So I thought I had something to say, and I also felt then uh, very excited to write it uh, because of what I think is our fraught um, political situation, even within Christianity. And I, I wanted to bring the Bible's voice to bear because the Bible's voice is God's voice. It's the Word of God. Uh, as Christians, we believe it. And I think sometimes we hold political views or public policy views or even just the principles that lead to public policies. We think they're biblical, but when we dig down, I think we don't find them as strongly supported as we might think. And I found myself changing my views, uh, not radically necessarily, but certainly in terms of um, perspective on a number of different issues as I dug down with these questions in my mind. So let's look at the definition of what politics is. Um, I looked it up, of course, and I found uh, the art or science of government or in, in the matters in the context of what we're talking about. Another one was the political opinions or sympathies of a person, the total complex of relationships between people living in society. 
how do you see the definition of politics in play here, especially uh, in, the, in your work? Right. Um, you know, my, my book is really about issues of public policy, which leads to the realm of politics as you define them, which includes, you know, the debate and discussion of different approaches to issues that affect our community, whether it's on the local level, the state level, the national level. And in turn, you know, so it's it's the idea of hashing out uh, these issues and also trying to jockey to be in a position to govern. So so that's why we have political debates and things like that as well. Okay, so is the Bible concerned or, or is the Bible concerned of of, of giving a specific kind of definition of how we interact with each other in a complex society? You know, that that's a really good question. One that I don't address in my book. It's kind of like the, the discussion you have before you get to the issues that I'm talking about in the book. Uh, you know, in a sense, you can argue that the Bible, you know, uh, doesn't give us a, you know, a specific model of governance, partly because, you know, particularly in the New Testament, which is most relevant to us today, and I do get into issues of continuity and discontinuity with the Old Testament, but one of the discontinuities is that in the Old Testament, the people of God are a political entity. Uh, they are a government. It's, it's Israel but there's no equivalent in the new Testament time period where the people of God are the church. And so drawn from many different nations. Um, so uh, one of the striking things I think about the new Testament is that it is about the origins of Christianity in the midst of a despotic authoritarian <laughs> Uh, Roman regime. And uh, one of, when I was digging into the chapter on religious liberty, one of the things that struck me is that um, neither in the Old nor in the New Testament is there a presumption of religious liberty, which is different than saying um, that, you know, I, I, I think you can make a biblical argument in favor of religious liberty but but there's not a presumption of religious liberty because the church can thrive in the context where there is no religious liberty. Um, and so I think um, I think that um, yeah, so so but I, I do believe, of course, that um, that since we are creatures created in the image of God, <laughs> Uh, you can use that biblical teaching and should use it as a basis to advocate for religious liberty uh, and freedom of conscience, not just for us as Christians, but for all religions and non-religious thinking. Um, and so um, I guess what I'm basically saying is that the church can thrive quite well under 
different forms of government. And matter of fact, anecdotally, uh, the church tends to do better when it doesn't have political power. Uh, you just think of the origins of Christianity and, um, and, and the issues and problems that crept in after Christians got political power in association with the Constantinian revolution. And, or even today, I talk a little bit about this in my book. If you compare uh, the Korean church at this moment with the Chinese church at this moment, and I've taught and have many friends and have talked to them in both settings. I've taught at the University of Peking and I've taught in Korea a lot, have had, you know, many, many, many Korean and Chinese students, wonderful people who are, you know, really great teachers of the Bible. But right now, I think my Korean friends tell me the Korean church, as it has grown close to political power and has amassed wealth, has also had a lot of issues recently with corruption uh, associated with power. Whereas in the Chinese church, where there's little religious liberty, there is this vibrant excitement. They're not infighting with each other like we do here in the United States in terms of our different theological perspectives. Um, there, there are tensions within the Chinese church, particularly between, say, house church and, and uh, the uh, three self church movement. Uh, and, um, and so, so the, there are tensions, but even those, at least the last time I was there, which was maybe six years ago, I used to teach there every year, um, even those were, were not as strong as they used to be because they were, you know, dealing with a extremely toxic, broader culture in China. Hey, so what should be our, well, so are you advocating that we think about these things as Christians and in the church, church leadership, whatever, denominationally, whatever, uh, we're, we're, are we thinking about the question, what should be our primary concern first? And then how do we, what is our relationship to the, to the outside world in terms of, you know, uh, social relationship, political relationships? Uh, I, I'm assuming, so, so what is, because as I hear you think, I mean, I'm thinking about Paul in Romans 13. I'm thinking about how yeah, Jesus right. uh, uh, was concerned with his relationship to Caesar and taxes. Yeah, and I'm not right. seeing those things were nonchalant, but I was saying it's almost as if you read those and that's not their primary concern. Right. Right. Uh, is that, do we, I'm just talking about here in America yeah. and I'm talking about deep South now that I'm from is sometimes it feels like our, maybe our target and our goals are, should be shifted a bit. And then we're not concerned with the primary things that we've been asked to do, which is to make disciples. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, even though I wrote this book on, on public policy and I think it's important for Christians to be mindful of that. I think one of the things that we need to be most concerned about is, isn't so much, let's say, the moral purity of America as it is the moral purity of the church. And also without, you know, moving toward a uh, Benedictine option kind of approach, which I don't agree with, uh, I do agree that what ought to be on our minds 
the most is, is as you say, evangelism and discipleship. Um, and, and I found something, and I mentioned this in my book, uh, I read Martin Lloyd-Jones' statement, um, and I footnote it, but I forget exactly where it's from, uh, maybe 15 years ago I read it, and it really impacted me. C.S. Lewis says something similar, and I quote him in my book, but it's basically, God is not interested in making non-Christians act like Christians. God is interested in non-Christians becoming Christians. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, w- when you think of that in terms of, say, um, you know, um, particularly, say, same-sex marriage, you know, I, I'm, I'm very clear in my writing, both in this book and in my book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, that the traditional church's understanding of, of God's intentions for sexuality exclude the idea of same-sex relationships. And, and, uh, and I think the church needs to remain pure on this. We, we can't affirm while we should welcome and love. But on the other hand, um, there's an area, and in my chapter on same-sex marriage, I, I suggest that while if we have the opportunity to voice our opinion in our, in our public square, uh, we ought to, you know, represent Christian values to the broader society. But we shouldn't think that that's an issue that we're going to resolve through legislative means. You know what I mean? And in, in, in other words, um, I, 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 I think uh, uh, overturning the Supreme Court, it's Obergefell, I believe, um, that recognizes uh, same-sex marriages across the nation. I, I don't think working to overthrow that, say, is the right strategy to um, to forward our Christian values in what is a toxic society. And I think one of the problems, by the way, Matt, is um, we think we should, partly because we live with this myth that the United States is a Christian nation. Um, and and it's we we want it to be a Christian nation in the sense that we want everybody to become a Christian and to live and reflect Christian values. Um, but we need to recognize that we live in a uh, pluralistic society and that um, and and no matter what yeah so so we need to recognize that as we promote uh, what we understand to be values that will lead to not only our flourishing but the flourishing of other people it's so interesting we could spend an entire year on this subject just because it's so, it's so interesting and it's so vital in how we, how we live our life. It's also very complex. Yeah. Uh, but, but when I was, I was just at a conference, uh, we had three gentlemen up. I was moderating the thing about reaching Gen Z. And one thing that I think has is connected to this, a, a question was asked, or at least I asked the question and it was responded to about the best way to be persuasive when it comes to generation Z 
And one of the speakers said, you know, saying things all the time, like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, is, is not as good. And we were talking about in terms of, of gay marriage. Um, wouldn't it be better if we gave a systematic, sustainable kind of uh, uh, narrative of why the way God instituted and established marriage is the best way to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. This is not the argument that we usually give. Right. You know, we're, we're, we're too busy trying to preserve or feel like we need to preserve something in the past. And, but by doing it, we, we, we lean on law to do it for us instead of giving a, a complete narrative or a complete story that scripture gives us on why, what we're saying helps us flourish. And that's what your, your work through wisdom helped me see is that maybe my starting point is wrong it seems like all your work is is culminating to to these these kind of works that you're doing now like wisdom has is all throughout this at least the way that you're viewing and promoting wisdom seems to be a natural outworking of of this book am i right oh yeah you're you're exactly right um yeah i do i do think the bible gives us principles to think through but those principles um aren't public policy they um you need to have wisdom wisdom as you well know matt because you're a student of wisdom literature as well is um yeah knowing well let's take the book of proverbs knowing the proverbs doesn't make you wise mm. uh being sensitive to the circumstances and the people you're interacting with and knowing which proverb applies and in what way that that's true wisdom so take a issue like immigration policy um the bible's really clear uh that god loves immigrants i think the bible's also really clear that nations should have border security <laughs> sure and uh, <laughs> and, uh <laughs> and so uh it's hard to get people to understand when you're trying to find you're not trying just to find a mediated middle you're trying right. to seek wisdom between what is almost a, is given to us as a two-horned dilemma right and the right, two-horned right. dilemma to me is always satan's big trick you yeah. Know, when in, yeah. when in fact there there is there are other ways out of these things and other strategies that we can use to actually think through these things. We don't have to feel like we're just a right and a left issue all the time. Right. Right. Or, or it's just this or just that. Maybe we can come together and and actually come together in dialogue to find a a, a truer solution on this side of of of, a, of us being in heaven. Yeah, and, and I think one of the problems, I don't know whether you agree with me, is uh, to go to one of the extremes, whether it's, say, in theology or in politics, to an extreme left view or extreme right view, uh, is very simplistic, you know? Um, so um, open borders, um, simple. Uh, on the other hand, keep all the immigrants out. Uh, demonize all immigrants uh, because there are some bad actors trying to come in and you demonize the entire uh that's that's simplistic wrong sinful uh we need to do the hard work of trying to find a welcoming immigration system that does the best to minimize what the risks are out there that's the other thing i think that 
has concerned me about Christian rhetoric surrounding an issue like this and other issues too, is we sound so fearful, you know? I know. It's, it's like, it's like uh, oh no, we'd, we don't want to take a chance um, to, you know, we might be harmed um, in one way or another. Christians more than anybody else should be ready to take these types of risks. Because uh, um, after all, we're the ones who have that eternal hope. And um, it, we, we don't take those risks because we might not be harmed. It's we take those risks because our ultimate hope and trust is in, in Christ. Yeah, and read the Bible, by the way. Um, yeah. We all know that the Bible is not an exhaustive rule book on all things, but the right. Bible speaks on a lot of things. I mean, you're talking about even immigration. The, 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 we need to push back categorizing people all the time. I mean, I'm thinking of Jesus going through Samaria and what that, what, what that meant powerfully. Because right. you have a whole group of people, you have you know, God's people saying these, these people don't matter. They're yeah. not valued. And yeah. just by making a part of his ministry, walking through there and ministering and disciples to people that are there was a huge yeah. thing. Yeah. He didn't, yeah. He, Jesus didn't concern himself with public policy. He was, uh, <laughs> what was the word? Uh, I was trying to look, David, James Davison Hunter said a faithful presence. Mm. Like mm. If, if, if Christians could just use faithful presence and that means living your life out and showcasing your, your devotion to King Jesus yeah. and appealing to our stories. Our stories are massively powerful because they're yeah. true. Right. So, okay. Again, I, you know, I, to even to promote this, this is, is a minefield for me in the world that I live in. And, and I'm aware of that. And I'm aware that there's blind sides for me too. So I, I'm trying to listen to all sides, but in reading, looking at your work and, and especially lately, uh, I just want to give you an opportunity because I, I love your voice. I love that you're open and honest and want to look at all sides. Um, but there was a Christianity Today article that just came out. Um, and when I read it yesterday, because you, you put it up on your Facebook page, <laughs> read. <clears throat> I do think that when people come to your book, there might be assumptions that they're bringing, like we all do, to the table. Yeah. And there might be fears because of their assumptions. What are you saying about some of these issues like homosexuality what, uh, and abortion, especially abortion. I've gotten a lot of kickback from, from friends of mine that are in the pro-life um, you know, world and they're speaking in the pro-life world. When it comes to public policies on these major issues that divide all of us, what are some of the things that you're seeing out there that people are assuming that you, that you, that you kind of wish that they wouldn't? Yeah, I mean, uh, I hope we get a chance to talk again about these subjects because I'll only be able to scratch the surface here. But but, uh, let's take the issue of abortion and the CT review that came out uh, just recently in the March edition. And let me first of all say, look, I'm very thankful that the author, Jonathan Lehman, uh, wrote the review. Uh, it's, It's negative. It wasn't it didn't attack me personally or anything sure. like that. Sure. And, and this is actually what I wanted my book to do is to elicit uh, reaction. What I was disappointed about the review is um, it really didn't interact with my biblical argument at all. And it may have not just been possible in such a review. And I don't think Lehman's a biblical scholar. I think he's a theologian. But um, 
but all that to say, as I say in my in my um, introduction of the book, I'm I'm the the kind of criticism that will be most um, effective, at least in terms of reaching me, as to counter my understanding of the biblical text that I address. And I think, by the way, uh, I'll just say, I know I'm not getting quite yet to the abortion issue, but I will in just a second, that that's the, the, the distinctive contribution that I'm trying to make here is that I'm interacting with the biblical text and asking what principles do we get on abortion, immigration, etc. I'm not a political philosopher or theologian. Um, and, and there's some really good works, James Davison, um, or Jamie Smith, I mean, Jamie yes. Smith and, uh, and a whole bunch of other people do really good job in that area, but they're not doing what I'm doing, uh, sure. with biblical arguments. So on the abortion issue, uh, one of the things that, uh, Jonathan Lehman said was that I seem to come out on the center left on all these issues. And, um, and so, and he said, I really love to see somebody who's both, uh, staunchly pro-life and open to reparations, you know? And so, um, uh, and by the way, I should say, I've read Lehman's book and, and he is really good on, on the issues of race and poverty in his book. So, and that's why I think he affirmed particularly what I was saying about poverty in the book. Uh, but in his book, he, he simply assumes that abortion is murder. Okay. So, uh, I think, and I remember reading that and saying, that's a, a statement that needs to be unpacked. Um, so I think to him, uh, to be, to be pro-life means you have to think that all abortions are murder, so that uh, early term abortion is morally equivalent to, you know, killing a two-year-old child. And as I looked at the relevant texts, and, and the first thing that is actually kind of jarring is to realize that there's nothing <clears throat> that directly addresses the issue of abortion in the Bible. You would expect that, um, that there might be some kind of case law connected to abortion, because there were lots of abortions during this particular time period. Meredith Klein wrote an article which says, um, well, the reason why there's no mention of abortion is because, uh, because it's such a high, heinous crime that it didn't even need to be mentioned. And I'm going, wait a minute, you're talking about necromancy and, you know, all kinds of horrible sins. Oh, he said that it wouldn't even have entered an Israelite woman's mind to have an abortion. And I, I just found that very strange way to argue. And then um, I started, and there's also a question in the Bible about when does human life begin? And texts that are commonly cited, like Psalm 139, Psalm 51, um, are in poetic context where there's a lot of hyperbole. And so, um, so I, I, I think those 
texts are often sort of, uh, you know, cited, but not really understood within their context. And then you have a law in Exodus 21, which if you read in the English, it uh, depends on which English version you're, you're using. Uh, Exodus 21 is about two men having a fight and they knock into a pregnant woman. And the Hebrew says, and the, the baby comes out. It doesn't say whether it comes out alive or dead, but it, uh, but, you know, NIV, NLT, et cetera, ESV would translate something like miscarriage, but that's not what the Hebrew says. Um, and I would suggest that the most natural um, outcome of such an event would be that the pregnancy would be terminated. And what's striking about it is that the that the penalty for that is a fine. Um, but if, you know, further harm, and in this case, I think it's in relationship to the woman, then it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, what's particularly interesting, and I'll stop with this comment, <laughs> is that, that uh, the Septuagint translation of Exodus 21, which, and we need to remember that no one was the disciples and and uh, others uh, weren't reading the Hebrew text. Jesus wasn't reading the Hebrew text. He was reading the Septuagint. And it is interesting because Hebrew is a dead language by the time of Jesus. So, um, so uh, it's interesting that the Septuagint translates it very interpretively. And it says, well, if the child's not yet formed, then there's a fine. Um, and but if the child is more fully formed, then it is treated as essentially the equivalent of murder. So um, so I guess I could go on and on. But I the view that I take is that all from what I read in the Bible is that all abortions are a moral violation. I am pro-life. I am not pro-choice. Uh, I, I do think that it's okay to take contraceptives. I, I you know, contra, contraceptives uh, because because um, we can't define exactly when life begins, but I don't think it begins when the sperm implants itself in the egg, um, and and so um, becomes a zygote. So. Um, so it's a moral violation. Um, I don't think it's the moral equivalent of murder until you get to say late term uh, abortions. And on a practical level, we don't even most pro staunchly pro-life, which is I think the way that uh, Lehman uses the term. I think when he says, I'm not staunchly pro-life, he simply means that I don't think all abortions from day one of the pregnancy is the moral equivalent of murder, um, is um, we don't really treat it that way. I mean, um, we typically don't have funerals for miscarriages. Um, you know, and uh, it's, 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 um, we're kind of ambiguous in terms of our, our, understanding of the moral status of the fetus, but there is a moral status there. 
And mm. so ending a abortion at any stage would be a significant moral violation. But my point is, I don't think you can make the case that all abortions are the moral equivalent of murder. Okay. And, the, and, and I, was, I would assume this would be the pushback you're getting in the evangelical world, especially when it comes to the pro-life issues. I mean, we could go back right. and forth and I'm, that's not my area. I mean, I have my yeah. own opinions about that and that's, sure, sure. that's not what this interview would be for, but I would say what you just said resonates with me because me and my wife have, have had experiences those in the past. And yeah. just to be honest with you, and this is just full candor on the podcast. It's not like we, you're right. It's not like I had, I invited my family in and, and we dealt with, those issues um, when it comes to miscarriages, like we would have if a two-year-old would have died, right? Uh, so I mean, if, yeah. And those, what you're doing, and I think what you're doing well is inviting is inviting the church to come in and think about these. And your area of study is biblically, it, it's biblical. Uh, you're a biblical scholar, so you're inviting us to come and look at this is what the this is what I think, and through all my study, this is what the Bible's saying. Don't say what it's not saying. And right. then we can all work as a church together to come with better ways to promote this to culture, you know, yeah. without going all right. the way to public policy. Right. right. Well, exactly. And I think, um, uh, you know, we want to provide appropriate protections to the unborn. We also don't want to demonize women who get abortions and, and treat them as if they are out and out murderers. Um, right. And, and 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 indeed, thank God, most pro-life people don't. I mean, they're. I mean, if you're, if you think it's murder, you think that a woman has an abortion, then she's an accomplice to murder. That's why I think it's actually dangerous to think that way, because I, you know, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the more violent reactions to uh, in the anti-abortion movement. Um, I had a student who was part of what became known as the Army of God uh, that was advocating violence against abortion doctors. Um, and and there have been abortion doctors who have been murdered. And sure. it's fooled by this type of, of issue. And also, I sorry, Matt, I'm just one more comment. No, also, I, I think in terms of wisdom, our goal is that there'll be fewer and fewer abortions. That's not going to happen by overturning Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Then, then states are going to pass laws allowing abortion. And even if, even if there's a federal ban on abortions, then people are going to have illegal abortions. Uh, this is an, another issue that I think the church needs to take the harder route of persuading our fellow citizens toward these ideas rather than legislating it. Yeah. And you, and again, you're not advocating for that's the only route you're saying right. let's do both. And in fact, yeah. there's a, there's a more valued position. Uh, I, I'm thinking as you're talking, you know, I remember uh, doing some research when I was in seminary on, and people talk about it all the time, but the encyclopedia of ancient Christianity uh, looked at the early Christians before Constantine who would come and either pick up the babies that were left out. You remember the, the yeah, story of right. the Roman babies left out in the road? Yeah. Some were already dead. So some right. would, they would come and they would bury, 
they would sometimes, ba- yeah. you know, they, there was this, this ritual of baptism over them, which is really to care over them, even over yeah. the ones that died because, and there was no policy for them to do some. They just felt the need because they had the Holy Spirit. We, we, yeah. we have a good track record, Christianity does, of valuing humanity. Yeah. Whether or not a government's for it or not. Yeah, right. Value, right. I mean, just look at look at abolitionists in the 19th century. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. an ongoing discussion about a certain sect of people that even that that had a fraction t- to their humanity. They were, you know, two thirds human or whatever it was. Right. Yeah. But yet. Yet there were Christians who were like, this is inconsistent with how we view humans because yeah. we're valued as humans. And I think that's kind of where. Because when you're talking about political ideas and because we're in a republic where we're, uh, we're invited to be a part yeah. of the conversation, right. we seem to think that's the only way to get these things done. And what I would advocate for is to say, if you only go that way, you're not doing what wisdom wants to do. Because what you're advocating for, which is the, which is the more difficult way to go about this, not only affects others, it affects you. Yeah, in a Christ-like way. Yeah, <laughs> that's what these actions, wise actions, not only affect outside world, they affect you internally. And in mm. going only the political route is actually you're not doing you or your community, your church community, justice because you're not allowing yourself to grow in a way that's Christ-like. Would that be fair? Yeah, very fair. I and, like and that, but that's a harder way to. Yeah, it's a harder way to have a conversation with somebody than church because this stuff is just jammed, packed with my, with a minefield of issues, and people are so. I mean, this is important, and these are important yeah. issues. So I understand why people just yeah, have these. Too. Yeah, people just get kind of worked up with these things, and rightfully so. But what I what I think I I like what you're doing is you're is you're just calling the church to action to think about these things in a way that that are Christ-like and actually pushing us maybe in some directions that might be um, harder. But at the end of the day, it's like what Paul would say, these things would bring out better fruit in us and in others. Hmm. Good. Yeah. We can't, I mean, this podcast is for you, not for me. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> saying that's the kind of, that's one of the reasons why I've always enjoyed the the way you do things. And, uh, and, and me and you and personally can have some things that we probably disagree on. Yeah. Sure. But at the end of the day, we're Christians and we're merely Christians and we're trying to do our best to showcase Christ in the world. Hey, yeah. um, any other things that you want to talk about in terms of this book? I would love to revisit this and, and maybe just do a deep dive in a subject or two. Yeah. Uh, one of the chapters that you do with, especially when it comes to, uh, uh, I'm, I'm looking over the chapters here, yeah. when it comes to globalization, nationalism, and patriotism, mm. these things are very important where I live and they're very important to me. So maybe those are some things we can we can do Great. more of a deep dive into. But I'm going to give you the last word. What, what are <laughs> things people need to know about your work? What is it that you're uh, revisit why you did what you did, and uh, just give a reason why people should should pick the book up? Well, yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, well, the reason why I wrote it is because I think that God speaks to us most clearly through the Bible. Um, it is the word of God. I, I think that the Bible, I'm sure that the Bible speaks to the issues that confront us in our uh, public life. I think, as you rightly put it, we live in a republic with, which invites our 
participation. Um, even though there are voices, secular voices that are trying to suppress religious voices, and of course, religious voices are trying to suppress the secular voices. But again, I think we need to recognize we live in a pluralistic society, and all these voices um, should be heard in the public square, and we should live our lives and articulate our viewpoints in a way that are winsome to people. And, and that's another thing. I'll just end with this, maybe. The Bible just doesn't speak to principles. It speaks to attitudes and, and also speaks to how we should talk about these matters. And if we're talking to each other as Christians in hateful, mean-spirited, you know, personal attacks, or even to the broader world in a way that comes across as anything but loving and concerned, um, I think we're, we're betraying the gospel. Uh, we can hold our viewpoints with conviction, uh, but let's stop demonizing each other. And I've learned this lesson over time. Don't get me wrong. I've, uh, I've gone over the line in some of my rhetoric and and my attitudes toward people and uh as my uh pastor when i was younger jack miller who was uh also tim keller's pastor we were on the session together in our 30s at new life church in philadelphia dave paulison was also on the session it was a great session uh but um as jack said we're all we're all recovering pharisees and we're all recovering sinners <laughs> so well the good thing is we didn't have to vote jesus in he's already on the throne amen and um amen. and he, he is not a fictional figure he is a real figure somewhere and yeah. uh sitting on the throne somewhere you know right. it right now presently and right. thank god he has given us his grace and he is going to rule forever and uh and thank god for all those things i thank god for you i thank god for the bible and the ballot uh, by Dr. Trimper Longman III. Uh, please go go seek it out. This is the start of a good conversation. And in fact, this is what Tactical Faith is trying to do, is just try to facilitate these kind of ideas. And uh, boy, you have just been a, a, a faithful Christian. And thank you so much for starting the discussion. And we would love to bring you back. And we are going to bring you back uh, to talk about these things more. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. <laughs>